This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by New Relic and Amazon Web Services. This week, I finished my chat with Mark Nunnenkoven about serverless privacy and compliance. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 72. separate things. You mentioned compliance mm-hmm. and you mentioned yeah. sort of legality or the legal aspect yeah. of things. So let's start with compliance for a second. So you mentioned sure. PCI, um, mm-hmm. but there are other compliance. There's SOC 2 and uh, ISO 9001 and 27001 yeah. and things like that. All things that I only know briefly, but they're they're not really legal standards, right? They're more this idea of certifications and some of them aren't even really certifications. They're more just like saying, hey, we're saying we follow all these rules. So there's a whole bunch of them. And again, I think what ISO 27018 is about personal data protection yeah. and some of these yeah. things and their rules that they follow. So I think these are really good standards to have um, and to be in place. So what what do we get? Because you said you have to make sure that your underlying infrastructure you know, has the compliance that's required. So what types of compliance are we getting with the services from AWS and Google and Azure and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so there's there's two ways to look at compliance. Well, there's three ways. Uh, compliance, you can look at as an easy way to go to sleep if you're having troubles. Just read any one of those documents and you're out like a light. Um, and then yep. the, uh, the other two ways to look at it are um, a way of verifying the shared responsibility model and then, then a, a way of doing business in certain areas. So we'll tackle the first one uh, because it's easiest. So uh, us as builders building on GCP or Azure or AWS or any of the clouds, and they all have um, in their trust centers or in their shared responsibility page, they will show you um, in their compliance center all the logos of the compliance frameworks that they adhere to. And what that means is that the compliance organization has said, you need to do the following things. You need to encrypt data at rest or encrypt data in transit. You need to follow the principle of least privilege. You need to reduce your support infrastructure. Like here are all the good things you need to do. Um, And what the certifications from the cloud providers mean is that they've had an audit firm. So one of the big five, like an Ernst & Young or a Deloitte, come in and audit how they run the service. So Mm -hmm. Azure saying that, hey, we are PCI compliant for um, virtual machines means that they are meeting all the requirements that PCI has laid out to properly secure their infrastructure. So that as a builder means that we know they are doing certain things in the background because we're never going to get a tour. We're never going to get the inside scoop of how they do updates and they do patching. And frankly, we shouldn't care. That's the advantage of the cloud, right? It's like, it's your problem, not mine. That's what I'm paying you for. Um, So compliance lets us verify that they're holding up their end of the bargain. So that's a huge win for everybody building in the cloud, whether or not you understand the um, mountain of compliance frameworks. The big ones are basically PCI, um, 27,001 from ISO is basically just general IT security. Like we don't set our passwords to password. Um, that kind of stuff. It's basic <laughs> hygiene. Um, and then the SOC stuff is around uh, running efficient data centers, right? So it's like we don't let Joe wander in from the street and pull plugs. We have a process for that and, you know, that kind of stuff. So great there. And um, the others are if you're in a specific line of business. So if you're in um, the United States and you're doing business with the government, you need a, a cloud provider that is FedRAMP certified, right? Because that is the government has said, if you want to do business with us, Here's the standard you need to meet. Therefore, uh, you know, FedRAMP is this uh, thing that vendors and service providers can adhere to, which means they meet the government's requirements to do that. 
And most of these uh, are set up like that. So even PCI is a combination of the big credit card processors. They have formed this third party organization that said anybody who wants to do business with us. So anybody who wants to take credit cards needs to adhere to these rules. If you don't take credit cards, you don't care about the rules. So that's the different way of looking at compliance. So it's very case by case. If we were building a gaming company, if we're taking in-app transactions like Fortnite through the App Store, um, that's a huge bonus they get is that Apple covers the PCI side of it. If they were doing it themselves, they would then have to be compliant. So if we're not falling under those anything, if we're just making a cool little game where you upload a photo and you know we give you back a funky uh, version of that photo, we don't have to comply to anything, right? As long as it's just a right. promise to our users. So that's that's the general gist of compliance. I don't know why I did wavy jazz hands, but you know there it is. <laughs> Well, no, I think that makes sense. I mean, and and you need to do something to make compliance exciting because I think for most people, you're right. Yes. It's a it's a document they could read and easily fall asleep. Um, you know, uh, that's a, if you have insomnia, then compliance mm -hmm. documents are probably the way to go. Um, so the other they thing are. you mentioned though is that again, you are always responsible for your data, and I think mm -hmm. up until fairly recently, there were no super strict laws on the book. Um, that were that were about privacy in general, and so obviously we get GDPR, mm -hmm. right? The uh, yep. uh, what does it even stand for? The General Data Protection Regulations, right? Did I get Correct. that right? Yep, um, you did. So, <laughs> so that is European. It has to do with the European Union, and that came out, and that mm -hmm. was really strict. And what they said was essentially, hey, I don't care if you're hosting in the United States, if you're on Amazon or Google or wherever you are, uh, if it is a European user's data that you have then you are subject to these uh, to these mm -hmm. bylaws. Um, and then yep. very recently, I mean, the same type of law, I don't know if they were modeled together, but the CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act, that mm -hmm. came out um, for the United States. And again, it was just for California, uh, California residents, users yes. data, but also yep. extends and applies all these different places. So these are very strict privacy control rules. I mean, it even gets to the mm -hmm. point where you're supposed to have like a, a privacy control officer and some of these other things, depending on the size yeah. of your company. If we go back to this idea of where our data is being stored. So think about this. I am writing an application that uses uh, DynamoDB and my DynamoDB application has to denormalize data in order to make it faster for it to load some different access pattern. Or I'm using Redis, or I'm using a SQL server that I'm backing up transactions, or I'm running data through Kinesis or through EventBridge. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got hundreds of places where this data could go. Maybe it ends up in S3 as part of a backup so I can run it through Athena and, and do some of these things. Now somebody comes along and says, hey, I have a right through GDPR and CCPA for you to delete my data and for you to forget me. Finding that data in this like a huge mm -hmm. web of other people's services is not particularly easy. Correct. So um, little little additional context around that. So CCPA is relatively new. Um, when it was initially proposed, it was fantastic. And then it got lobbied down significantly um, to the point where uh, it doesn't even apply unless you make at least $25 million a year. So it's not even- Welcome to just, America. Yeah, exactly. But it is a first <laughs> test at scale in the United States as to whether or not uh, legislation will work um, on that. And the reason it's in California is very specific. A lot of the tech is based there. It is a good mm -hmm. first step. 
So let's use GDPR as an example because it's, it's been out for two years now and, and there was a preview for two years before that. Um, and it was 27 different nations coming together to figure out where they wanted to go. And we've got a lot more examples around it, but the, the core principle is the same. The United States is moving closer, but it's gonna take a long time just because of the cultural uh, differences, the political differences. So GDPR really boils down for the users to something very simple. Um, as a European citizen, I have the right to know what you know about me and what you're doing with that information. And if there's any issues with that, I have the right to ask you to remove it or to change any uh, thing that's incorrect. That, that's the user side of GDPR. And now there's a whole bunch of stuff behind that. From the business side of GDPR, you already laid out one of the biggest challenges is how the hell do I answer that question, um, right? Especially if you're not building it fresh, if you have an existing application that was never designed with this in, 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 um, in mind. Now, the interesting thing for GDPR is that there are two very big sticks associated with it. Why, as a security and privacy guy, I love it. It's not perfect. Um, but the, the first stick is that if you do not take reasonable steps to uh, provide security controls with your infrastructure, you can get um, a fine of up to 4% of your global turnover. So not profit, 4% of your global take. So if you make a billion dollars, you could be fined up to 4% of a billion dollars, whether or not that's uh, profit, paying off debt or whatever. So that's for not doing due diligence of adhering to something like an ISO 27001 or the basic security controls, right? So if I'm setting my passwords to password, I can get a big, big fine. The second big stick of GDPR is if I know there's a breach and fail to tell you about it, I can get hit with another 2% of my overall global take uh, for failing to tell you within an appropriate amount of time, and that appropriate amount of time is 30 days or less. The average uh, law in the United States says it's best case effort for notification or at most 45 days. So GDPR is a very big stick, uh, lots of reasonability behind there from the user's perspective. But from a builder's perspective, what you just laid out runs counter to most of the things we're looking for, right? Like we are trying to optimize, we are trying to denormalize data. Um, you know, you mentioned S3, think about Glacier. Like Glacier, just right. the costs alone of if I archive your personal yep. data and shove it into Glacier, not only do I have to find it and then I have to pull it out um, and either remove it or modify it and then put it back. Like that is a, a huge thing. But again, like we talked about earlier, if you plan for this stuff ahead of time, it's not yep. nearly that bad because it turns out when you look at this kind of data management through your application, there's actually a lot of benefits just to building your application to being able to trace a piece of data through your system, to know what I know about you, Jeremy, as a user of my application, there are huge benefits because you lose these sort of legacy bugs where it's like, oh, you opened your account before 2008? Well, you have this check mark instead of this one. Um, that kind right. of stuff gets solved. So for new businesses, I think if you understand it, it's a minimal cost um, just because it's really getting the expertise in to help you do those design work. For existing businesses though, it is a nightmare. Literally, people spent yes. two years getting ready for GDPR, and then the regulator still gave them another year before they hit anybody with any substantial fines because of the massive undertaking it is to actually build that kind of infrastructure. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the other thing, um, I guess my advice would be, if you're designing these systems and you're building these systems, I think uh, people hopefully think about tenancy when it has to mm -hmm. do with, or multi-tenancy when it has to do with building, um, you know, sort of bulkheads around different 
clients. So if you're, especially if you're a SaaS company and you have like a big client, you might want to separate out their data from other people's data and have those in separate places. Um, you can do that to some extent, even with user data, right? And so knowing what data you're logging, where you're saving data, using an identifier that maybe obscures that user. I mean, one way that we tried to handle this in the past was only having personally identifiable data associated in one place um, where that could be removed. So even though there was a unique identifier for that person, as long as you removed in that one place, right, which again, and backups, um, but at least you removed in that one place that you would essentially forget. So you'd have the data anonymized, but you'd essentially forget it. Now, does that go far enough? I don't even know. I've read the GDPR documents before, um, and I, I I read summaries of GDPR, you know, like what the rules are, that I think were longer than the actual rules themselves, because yep. again, it is kind of you know confusing to go through that. So I, I think that's one thing. Again, people got to think about GDPR, think about CCPA. The other thing that's been around for quite some time um, around uh, privacy for children has been COPA, um, yep. which I always thought stood for the Child Online Privacy Protection Act. Um, but I think you told me that that it actually is the rule. Anyways, yeah, yeah the, the A's just made up. The A's just made up. So thinking about Fortnite and YouTube yeah. and all and oh, yeah. TikTok and you know all these things that that children like mm-hmm. to use and like mm-hmm. to share stuff and are very quick to say, oh, I was born in what two thousand and seven. Yeah. I'm going to say I was born in two thousand and five, so that now I'm I, I'm over mm-hmm. the age limit. And of course, there's no verification. There's nothing that stops somebody from doing that. So. I'd love to talk about this because this is something, I mean, as, again, I, I'm a dad. I have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old. And um, mm-hmm. and I will not say whether or not my 12-year-old is using a Fortnite account that has an incorrect birthday on it, um, nope. but it's possible she is uh, mm-hmm. in order to get access to that stuff. Yeah. So what do we have to do from a privacy perspective and from a legal perspective in terms of protecting ourselves from this? Because this one has a lot of teeth. It does. It, it absolutely does. So if we if we take it from the builder perspective, not the parental perspective, the builder perspective, there is a lot of and we can cover the parental in a, in a second, but because I've got both mine are under 13. So it's it's double whammy. Um, but from a builder perspective, this is where you see in the terms of service that, again, nobody reads. It says right. you can't open an account if you're under 13. And what that's and I'm not a lawyer. Thank God. I didn't even play one on TV. Um, what that means is they're trying to shift liability to the user and saying, if you lied to sign up, that's on you, not me. Because the, yeah. to the nice thing about COPPA and it's designed, it is actually has a reasonable structure to it to try to prevent um, companies from tracking kids under 13 online. So you see it a lot of impacts in advertising. Um, and so YouTube, at the start of the year, there was a huge push where YouTube basically asked anybody uploading any videos, is this made for kids? Do you think kids might be interested right. in this? Because if so, yeah. we're not putting ads against it because we don't have the ability to turn off all the tracking in the back end. So it's ads or nothing. And there's a huge uproar around it. And you know they've softened that interpretation, but it's because they got hit with a $170 million fine against this uh, rule because they weren't following it. So from a builder perspective, it's being aware that if you're serving uh, to children, uh, like if you have an application that is, so let's let back, back up for two seconds. Ignore the case where people are lying to get on, right? You need right. to put that reasonable and say like, hey, you know, for a Fortnite example saying, hey, we rated it 13 plus. Um, so, you know, it's not marketed towards children. We've said it's 13 plus. 
um, for a maturity level, just like, you know, the movies are rated, the games are rated. And we've added in the terms of service that you shouldn't be playing, you shouldn't open an account if you're 13 plus. So we're pushing liability to the user. Um, so in that case, you should probably be covered. Um, but if you're actually making something that covers kids and families, this is a very real thing that you need to adhere to the rules of the act, which essentially say you can't track kids, um, you can't, uh, you know, advertise directly to them. So where this falls, a uh, question I get a lot is around school, especially now that kids are back in school or going back to school, even remotely, yep. is G Suite for education versus G Suite are the same thing software wise, but very different things legally. And so school yeah. boards need to understand what services from Google fall under the G Suite from education or for education license, because that license follows COPPA to the letter and says, we're not tracking kids. We're not moving forward, this, that, and the other thing. So when you're signed in as a child uh, from the school board and then surf YouTube, the normal tracking doesn't happen on YouTube. It actually creates a shadow account that's not associated to your account and tracks that and doesn't link it back mm -hmm. to you as a child. Whereas if you're a normal G Suite user and start to surf YouTube, all that activity is linked back to your G Suite account. So as a builder, if you're designing something that could be targeting kids legitimately, you need to understand that there's a very hard line that you can't do a bunch of tracking. You have to take, uh, you can't take the same level PII, um, if any at all. You need to provide uh, adult controls. There's a whole bunch of things that are worth consulting an expert on this for to make sure that you don't uh, follow through. On the parenting side, it's a great excuse to say no for social media if you want no for social media for the young kids. <laughs> when they're like, I want Insta, and you're like, you legally can't have it, you're not 13. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I, again, I think about those, those situations that pop up all the time where people are building things that affect kids. I mean, Fortnite is a good example in the sense that yeah, because kids aren't going to play Fortnite. No, it's not. I mean, you, it's, it's yeah. clearly made for kids. And again, and you say the fourteen, I mean, the thirteen and older, and that's fine. But think mm -hmm. about Netflix profiles, right? Like you create yeah. a profile for your kid, and mm -hmm. it tells you what your kid was watching. Now, so the yes. that's good, right? Because you can go and see what your kid watches. But are they using that data for advertising or optimizing what they might mm -hmm. show to your kid? Like if they're using that for recommendations, does that you know, where does the privacy line kind of sit for those things? Yeah, and that's a very good use case because a lot of kids I know, unless they're really young, don't want the Netflix kids interface. They want the actual yes. Netflix interface, right? Because Netflix kids, for little ones, it's great because it just shows you like Dora and, you know, right. uh, Teletubbies, you know, like, cool, I can just click on the icon I want. For kids, you know, once they pass five, they're like, I want to search. I want to know what I, you know, I know what I want. I want Transformers off we right. go or glitch text right. or whatever. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about COPPA is it really ex uh, like optimizing your service is almost always the uh, out for a lot of these privacy uh, regulations. And there's always outs. And this is where it really comes down is none of these regulations are, are perfect. There's the letter of the law and then there's the intention behind the law. And that really yeah. depends on company culture. Almost every company follows the letter of the law or what they think they can argue that letter to be. Um, whereas, because COPPA has very real fines behind it. There was a uh, Silicon Valley on HBO had an episode where they were freaking out because their chat app uh, was popular with preteens. And I think it's uh, 48 or 58,000 per user um, fine, right? So if you have millions of right. users, it's an insanely high fi fine. And that's great. We want that as parents for that protection. But the line, um, you know, what your question really uh, hits on is even with GDPR, even with all the uh, CCPA, is what is personal information 
is really the core question. And there's no clear answer because what you think of personal information and what the law thinks is very different because uh, this is where a pet peeve of mine with Facebook uh, in general um, is when they're arguing in front of Congress and uh, Congress in the first time Zuckerberg testified, they directly asked him and said, do you sell user data? And he could, he honestly, you know, in his data-like face said, no, we don't sell yeah. user data because they don't sell user data because their, con their understanding of user data by their definition is data that you have uploaded to the service. So your status updates, the photos and movies that you upload is user data. Uh, the things yeah. you type in are user data. But what Facebook sells is access to your behavioral and demographic profile that they have created from user data. So what Facebook sells is not user data. Facebook sells access to data about users. Now that seems mm -hmm. like a super fine semantic hair splitting thing, and it is, but that's the fundamental thing that you're talking about with even the Netflix example. Is that what your kids watch? Is that user data or is that data about users? Because all this regulation protects user data, not data right. about the users. And there's a multi-trillion dollar economy dealing in data about users and they don't care about user data. Right. Yeah. And I don't think we have enough time to get into all the details of that. <laughs> but what I will say is I do know that for me personally, like I don't like to share a lot of my personal data. I, <laughs> uh, Facebook is a, just a pet peeve. Never mind yeah. <laughs> pet peeves about it. I mean, the whole thing, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of it um, just because I, I do feel like it's very exploitive and, and it's, it's just it's something that again once once our parents got on it it just ruined the whole thing anyways but um but i do think that there are valid use cases for taking data about a user maybe not user data but for optimizing your application so i do think that that does make a ton of sense i mean like again what are the most popular um you know products that are being clicked on like if you couldn't record that and then use that to show products i mean that would be would be pretty bad. But knowing your particular preference for certain things and then being able to sell that to an ad company that they can combine with something else that then can serve you up targeted ads, good for the ad companies, maybe good for you if you're getting really relevant ads, but at the same time, um, it's just that a lot of that feels dirty and creepy to me um, when you start getting very specific on profiling individual users, but hey, all you got to do is read these privacy documents, or, you know, these terms and conditions, and you'll see exactly what they're doing. So if you don't have a problem with it, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard because I think most people just glaze over it. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to talk about New Relic. I know when it comes to things like observability and tracing, you're probably thinking I should talk about Datadog, Prometheus, or even OpenTelemetry. And a few months ago, I would have totally agreed with you. But New Relic did something a little out there. They literally reworked everything. They've actually been listening when people talk about blind spots, being stuck with a dozen different tools, or getting hit with hidden costs. So first, they went open source, making it so that you can actually instrument whatever you need. Then, they made it so you can monitor your whole entire stack in one place, including your serverless workloads. You can use telemetry data from any source for ridiculously cheap, and there's just one UI with all the tools you need. Plus, they've completely changed their pricing to a consumption-based model so that you can easily predict your bill. Now, I love this pricing model because it scales as my cloud application scale, just like with serverless. And best of all, there's a perpetual free tier with one user and 100 gigabytes per month 
totally free. You can try it and make sure it works for you before it costs you anything. So if you want observability made simple, New Relic is definitely worth another look. Check out their platform at newrelic.com. Um, so another one though, another law that has a, a, a ton of teeth and I think is going to be more important given the fact that we are now living in a COVID-19 world um, and more people are building tele-health uh, apps or they're building other apps that are like even tracking um, COVID cases and some of these other things. Um, for a very, very long time, there is a law called HIPAA, um, right? That is to protect medical data and all that kind of stuff. Where does privacy play in with that, especially now with all of this medical data, a lot of it being shared? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really interesting example. And I'm glad you brought it up because the privacy. So, you know, we've already talked about if you're building an application um, to support, you know, because there's lots of opportunity here. And if you're building right. an application to uh, service the medical community and that medical community expand, expands far beyond doctors, it's, you know, all the third party connections and things, they all have to follow HIPAA when it comes to health information. So now we're talking about PHI, so personal health information, in addition mm -hmm. to personal information, PII, right? So you have both of these in this application. And HIPAA dictates what you're allowed to do with that health information. And again, it comes down to a lot of uh, transparency required because us as patients want that data shared. If you give uh, a history to your doctor and your doctor refers you to a specialist, you want your doctor to share that history information with the specialist because you don't want to go to the specialist and take a, you know half an hour of that first appointment reiterating what you already told the first person right and when you right. go get x-rays or an mri you want the result of that to be sent back to your doctor you don't want to walk around with a usb stick and go yeah, i brought my data please please analyze it right so there's a lot of efficiencies right. to be had and and hipaa dictates the flow of information between different providers. And that's why there's a lot of consent forms dealt with HIPAA. So when you sign up with your doctor, if you go to a GP for the first time, they're gonna get you uh, to sign a data sharing document that basically says they're allowed to uh, share information with other specialists that they refer you to. Um, with insurers in the States, again, an outlier given how the rest of the world works with insurance. Um, but the interesting thing again, is that as a builder, you need to make sure the service you're dealing with is HIPAA compliant. Otherwise you cannot be HIPAA compliant. But in specific to COVID, HIPAA has an exemption like most privacy acts that says if it's in the uh, interests of public health, all of these controls can be foregone and that data can be shared with centralized health authorities. So in the States, that information could be shared with the CDC. So everything you've told your doctor could theoretically be shared with the CDC if it's in interests of um, going and helping prevent the spread of COVID-19. Now, there are lawyers on every side of it. That is the one advantage of the United States. While you lack the overall frameworks, you have more than enough lawyers to make up for it. Um, right. So the originator, you know, your doctor's office is going to push that through a lawyer before they release all the information up to the HMO. The HMO is going to go through their legal team before they send it to, to the CDC and so forth. But it is an interesting exemption saying essentially, I don't necessarily care about your history of um, you know, back issues or sports injuries or blah, 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 but I wanna know every patient that has tested positive or had any test for COVID-19 because we need those stats up, right? And we need to roll that up at the, at the municipal level, at the state level and at the federal level because it's in the public interest. And in this case, and it's a common challenge uh, and it's always all shades of gray, is your mm -hmm. personal privacy is not more important than the general health of the community 
or of the state or the nation in certain cases. And I think a global pandemic provides a lot of uh, argument on that front. But we had a case here in Canada where uh, law enforcement made an argument early in the pandemic that they wanted access to any, uh, they wanted a central database they could query that would tell them if someone they were dealing with had tested positive for COVID. And that went up to our privacy commissioner, then to our federal privacy commissioner, because their argument, the first response, like the police argument was, we could be potentially exposed and we want to know, right. um, which there's there's valid, to, there's validity to that argument. Um, but the flip side was, well, is it enough to breach this person's personal privacy? Um, and the uh, current result, the last time I checked was no, it wasn't. Um, whereas the aggregate stat, if I test positive or negative, that stat is absolutely pushed up. Um, with not my name, but with the general area where I live. So in my case, you know, my postal code, which is the same as the zip code, that gets pushed up because that's not a breach yeah. of my privacy, right? But it helps the information, right? It's a, it's, or I shouldn't say it's not a breach. It's a tiny breach compared to the big benefit that the the community gets. So fascinating, all shades of gray, no clear answers, but it is an exemption, uh, and those are, are are not uncommon. There's also exemptions in privacy laws for law enforcement requests. Right. If a right. law enforcement officer goes to a judge, gets a subpoena uh, or a warrant, all the privacy protections are out the window. Right. Well, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned the you know sort of this idea of the contact tracing application, um, mm -hmm. and obviously there's privacy concerns around that if it's about specific people. But from the law enforcement uh, perspective, I mean, obviously I'm sure you've been paying attention to what's been going on in the United States. Um, if somebody has pre-existing conditions, like even using a taser on somebody, which is probably a bad idea in, in most situations anyways, but like yeah. if there were underlying health concerns that they could say, oh, this person does have, you know, I don't know, asthma or they have a heart condition or things like that, where mm -hmm. using different types of force or using different methods could um, could cause more harm than it does good if it if it does good in some cases, but the but that would be interesting data to potentially be shared, maybe with a police officer if that was or a law enforcement officer or maybe not, right? So I mean that's mm -hmm. that's the problem is that you're right. There's certain data that could be shared that could help you know could be um, uh, beneficial to the public good, but then on the yeah. other side, you know there's there's probably a lot that you don't want to share. Yeah. So the more common example with uh, with law enforcement um, is outside of the health uh, um, health information is your cell phone, right? So your cell phone uh, location. Yeah, the question of um, so not only getting access to the phone, but the fact that your phone constantly pings the the network in order to get the best cell service, right? So at any given time, you're normally within. If you're in the city, there's five cell towers you could be bouncing off of, and one or two of them are going to be better than the rest because they're closer physically. Um, and the question you see this in the TVs all the time, where uh, depending on the jurisdiction, law enforcement may or may not need a warrant to get your location information. There are requests from certain cell providers where they can file it and get the location of your uh, SIM card right now uh, or your identifier for your phone without going through a, a significant legal process. It's just a simple request either from the investigating officer um, or from uh, the DA instead of going through a judge. And that is an interesting one because that's never been argued, uh, again, out in public. And I'm a big fan of there's no wrong answer. You need to just have transparency so people understand. And when decisions are made behind the scenes, because you can see the argument either way, right? Like if a kid is lost, and you know, besides sending out an Amber Alert, uh, which I think you guys have, we have them here where they blast yes, everybody's yep. phone. Um, uh, you know, instead of sending an Amber Alert, if you could ping that kid's phone and know where they were, 
um, that you may be able to retrieve that child. And we know when children are missing, every minute counts, right? The outcomes are significantly better the faster you find that kid, regardless of the situation. But on the flip side, if they're tracking you because they suspect you of a crime, but it hasn't been proven, is that a violation of your rights? So there's, you know, when it comes to privacy, one of the reasons I love diving into it is because it is all nuance and, you know, edge cases and specific examples and overriding things. But most of it's done behind the scenes, uh, which is the one thing I do not like, because I think it needs to be out in the open so people understand. Yeah. And I think the the other thing that is sort of interesting about this um, uh, electronic surveillance debate versus mm -hmm. the traditional um, analog thing. I remember, yeah. I, I'll give you this example. I remember there was a big uh, to-do, and I think it was going around on Facebook or one of these things where people were like, do not put your home address into your GPS in your car because if mm -hmm. somebody breaks into your car, then they can just look at your GPS and get your home address. Yeah. Or they could open your glove box and take out your registration that also has your home address on it, right? So that's the kind of thing yeah. where like that to me was kind of dumb. Now, the other thing that uh, going back to the police example is that yeah. I read somewhere and again, and I'm, I'm really hoping this is true because you just it's so hard to trust information nowadays, mm -hmm. but that if a police officer or a detective wanted to wait outside someone's house and follow them, right? Mm -hmm. That's perfectly legal for them to do. If they have some reasonable mm -hmm. suspicion, they can follow somebody, they can tail somebody, whatever they call it, they can do that. But to put some sort of tracking device on their vehicle, that they can't do. Um, although it's sort of the same thing, except one requires a human to be watching and the other one doesn't. And and I and again, I I'm not a huge fan of surveillance, so I'm mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. I'm definitely on the on the on the more restrictive side of these things. But at the same time, those arguments just seem really strange to me that it's like it's legal in one sense if it's analog, but it's illegal if it's digital. Yeah. And so so there's an even clearer example. Um, it's uh, that you require a warrant to uh, in most states. And again, not a lawyer, um, but you require a warrant <laughs> to get the um, passcode or password for a user's phone, but do not require mm -hmm. a warrant to use a biometric unlock. So I can force you to uh, use your thumb or your face to unlock your phone, but I can't force you to give me your passcode. Um, both unlock the phone, right? Um, the mm, passcode, the biometric, right. you know, I mean, there's technical differences in the implementation, but at the end of the day, you're doing the same thing. Um, but it's the difference right. between something you are and something you know, and you can't be compelled to incriminate yourself uh, in the United States. So, you know, there's there's that difference, right? And if you go to the border, all this is, is moot because there's an entire zone in the border where, you know, all your rights are essentially suspended. I think it really, you know, it comes down to the transparency, uh, but for all the examples you just mentioned, the law is always about 10 to 15 years behind technology. Um, yeah, so this comes back to one of my, my core experiences is as a forensic investigator. Now, I've never testified in court, but I'm qualified to. Um, most of the reports and things that I worked on were at the nation state level and never get to court. Um, but the interesting thing there is the amount of cases I reviewed uh, from court findings and having forensics done, um, they're all over the map. Right. And, you right. know, the case of like, oh, an IP is an identifier. And I'm like, an IP is not an identifier of a specific device if it goes into a building that has 150 devices behind a NAT gateway. Which of those devices committed you know, the act that you're in question? You can't prove yep. with just an IP address, right? But it's been accepted in a ton of court cases because again, the law and comes back to privacy as well, the law is way behind the capabilities. Um, and this is the challenge of writing regulations, of writing law. You need to keep it high enough that it's principled 
and then use examples and precedent for the specific technologies because they keep changing. Because, yeah, some of the stuff like the tailing something, it's such a ridiculous difference between the two. Um, but right. it is it is legally a difference. Um, similar back yeah. to tie this back to the main audience of builders building stuff in the cloud, especially around serverless. How we handle passwords is always very frustrating for me. So let, let mm. me ask let me ask you a question. Why does a password field obscure the information you're entering into it? This is not a it's um, not a so trick people, question. I'm not trying to put you on the so spot. So people can't but. if people looking over your shoulder can't see it. Or so that you don't remember what password you typed in. Both are true. But yes, the design of that security control is to prevent a shoulder surf, right? It's to prevent somebody mm -hmm. looking over the shoulder and typing in. So the question is, is why do we have that for absolutely every password field everywhere when there are very low likelihoods of certain situations where people are looking over the shoulder, which is why I love and Amazon.com has this and a bunch of other people are starting to add the show my password. Um, yes. to allow the users to reduce the number of errors you put in. Because if I'm physically alone in my office, right? Like this is a real background. Nobody is is looking over my shoulder and, and watching my password. So why am I, I can't see what I'm typing, right? Similarly, when people say, you know, I'm gonna prevent copy and paste into a password uh, box. Oh, Absolutely, that. prevent oh. copy, prevent copy 100% of the time. But paste is how password managers work. And what's the threat right. model around pasting into a box? Right. So you paste right. the wrong password. Who cares? So it's understanding mm -hmm. the control and why you're doing it is is really, really critical. Same thing on the passwords. Why people freak out when I, I tell them, well, write it down. Like if you don't have a password manager, write it down on a piece of paper. And they're like, what? Oh, my God. Why would I do that? Well, yeah, writing it down on a piece of paper and putting it under your keyboard in an office is a dumb idea because that's not yeah. your environment. But we're both right. at home. And if I exactly. put my password under my keyboard, it's my kids and my partner that are the threat potentially someone I invite into my home. But if I've already invited them in my home or it's someone in my family, there's a bunch of other stuff they already know anyway. Like it's not, right? Whereas that will help me having it written down. So it's understanding, again, no bad decisions, understanding yeah. the implications of your decisions and making them explicitly covers security, it covers privacy. Right, and I can think of 10 people off the top of my head that probably could answer every security question that I've ever given to a bank yeah. or something like that because they know me. Right? Yeah, exactly, um, right? So, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that's a good point about some of these um, security controls we put into place that I, are, are, I guess, again, it's just friction and it gives security mm -hmm. a bad name. My payroll um, uh, interface that I use is all online. Um, and whenever I have to have a deposit for my taxes, um, it tells me how much money it's going to take out of my account for my taxes. Well, I move money into separate accounts for those certain things. So I like to take that amount, copy it, and paste it into a transfer window on another browser in order to transfer that money so that it's in the account that it'll be deducted from. I cannot mm -hmm. copy from that site. It won't let me copy information from that site. And I think to myself, I'm like, why? I can print it to a PDF and copy it from the PDF. I can print yep. it, I can do other things. So why, yeah. why do you add that level of friction that potentially creates um, mistakes, like you said, which is why that show password thing is um, is so yeah. important. Um, so, anyways, I want to tie. I want to go back to the HIPAA thing for a second because this is something sure. where we may have gotten a little off topic. Uh, I think it was all a great discussion because I love that. that. This stuff to me is fascinating. But mm -hmm. the 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 point that I wanted to kind of get to with the HIPAA is if I'm sharing your X rays, okay, yep. I get it. I got to be HIPAA compliant. 
But where is the line for these builders that are building these peripheral applications around medical services, mm -hmm. medical devices, medical um, professional build, uh, hospitals, whatever? Where's the line? Because I think about an application that says, you see this all the time. I just started dealing with, we just got a new dentist. My old dentist retired. Um, he was a completely analog. I don't even think they had an email address, right? Everything was phone yeah. calls, printed out. I mean, they were excited when they could print out a little paper card and give it to you with your next appointment on it. Okay. So I moved to a new dentist. This new dentist has 100% online scheduling, right? It's great. You pick your hygienist. You can say when you want to, you know, when you want to set your appointment. And I think about this for doctor offices as well, because I know with my doctor's office, it's through a larger, um, uh, I don't know, coalition or whatever it is. Yep. Um, and so they have this health center that you can log into. I don't think you can make appointments, but but there's some there's some stuff there. But let's say someone's building a simple application that is just a scheduling app, right? Like maybe mm -hmm. your little doctor's office or a dentist's office, whatever, and you want this scheduling capability. Yep. Um, so if I go and I allow the scheduling, if mm -hmm. I'm booking an appointment for, okay, a general physician or whatever, or a general, practi general practitioner, okay, not, probably not that big of a deal. But what if I'm booking for an oncologist? What mm -hmm. if I'm booking for an obstetrician? What if I'm booking for Planned Parenthood or something like that that gets yeah. into really specific things about, you know, obviously, uh, you know, my, my health or, you know, my, my spouse's health, my kid's health, whatever it is, when you start booking into specific types of doctors, even though it may you're saying, well, we're not sharing any information about your medical, that reveals a lot, right? So when when does that get triggered? When does HIPAA get triggered? Yeah. And you'd have to consult a lawyer to get the actual official answer um, because it's case by case. And I always have to say that uh, most, most of my conversations start with big disclaimers. Um, the challenge here, so if I take this from a builder perspective, right? So if we're, we're focusing on the audience who's listening, um, you know, who are watching, they're probably building, you know, applications like this or interacting with them. It is easier to take a more strict approach from the builder side because you're never going to regret having taken more precautions if you do it early right. so that you're not introducing friction. So treating everything as uh, personal health information or personal uh, identifiable information is going to give you a better outcome because if you're like, oh, I treated that as health information and it wasn't, the cost is almost minimal to you when you're designing it from day one. Because even, you know, you said, well, the GP is not that big of a deal. Well, not only is the doctor still a big deal because it, it means something is of concern, even if it's a checkup. Mm -hmm. But if you have a notes field where you say, like, why are you requesting this appointment? Lord knows mm -hmm. what people are going to type in there. Right. Absolutely. Because they're they're yep. they're going to assume like this is just between my and me and my doctor. And I'll be like, well, I have a lump on my neck that I want to get checked out. And you're like, oh, my God, like that's that's right there. Diagnosis or symptomatic information is health information. Right. right? Um, because even if they just said like, oh, nothing's fine, you know, everything's fine. Well, that still can be treated as profile information. Now, the problem is just like most of the privacy legislations, there's this concept of user data and data about the user. So HIPAA uh, mainly focuses on user data, which is, again, what you're typing in and the specific entry. So the information you just said, the case, now I believe this to be true, but I'll have to double check. The, the fact that you're seeing a doctor is not necessarily protected under HIPAA. So the fact that you've mm. booked in with the oncologist, right, or the pediatric yeah. surgeon or whatever the case may be, is not a specific class of data that needs to be protected. The information you share with them, your diagnostic results, the, um, you know, all your blood work, all that kind of stuff absolutely is. But the fact that you haven't, uh, that you just booked an appointment or you spoke to them on the phone, isn't necessarily protected. I believe it should be. 
because it is very yeah. clear that, you know, I don't care what type of cancer the target has. I just care that they do, because that's something yeah. I as a cyber criminal can manipulate to get what I want. Right. Um, so that right. that's a big problem is that there's not that line. So similarly, um, a different example under medical is uh, the genetic testing. Right. So 23andMe, Ancestry.com, like, hey, test your genes yeah. at home. Uh, they all advertise like, hey, we keep your data super secure and we, you know, we protect your health information and blah, blah, blah. But they aggregate out your genetic code and mm -hmm. use that for a whole bunch of stuff in the back end. And they say, well, we don't tie it to you. Well, it's easy enough if somebody gets that piece of information to then tie it to you if they have access to the back end systems anyway. And that's sort of the challenge we deal with with all these data and specifically with healthcare is it's very rarely one piece of information that is the, the biggest point of concern. It's the multiple pieces of information that I can put together in an aggregate to get a better picture of what I want to, as a malicious actor. So I don't care that you spoke to this doctor, but I do care that you went from no doctor's appointments to like five in a month, right? Because now I know, I don't know what's wrong, but I know it's something big because who sees five doctors in a month from you know never seeing a doctor in the last year, right? Like something is happening. And so if you look yeah. at like, put, put your bad guy hat on, um, if I'm trying to break into the government and you work for the government and I realize there's something wrong, there's a good chance that I could make a cash offer that you're looking at a mountain of medical bills and I could probably compromise that way and say like, hey, here's a million bucks, I need your access and, and I'm yeah. in. Even not knowing what was wrong, but just knowing that pattern has changed. So it's again, a lot of nuance and a lot of challenge, but from a builder perspective, if you treat everything uh, in a health application as PHI, your cost is not going to increase significantly. Uh, if you plan early enough, your friction isn't going to increase, but you're definitely going to protect your uh, your users to a higher level, which is actually a competitive differentiator as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the best advice out of that is seek legal uh, professional or professional yes. legal help Always. Um, for those sort of things. And that's, and that's the thing that just makes me a little bit nervous. Whenever you're building something new, like you might have a great idea or you're, you're going down a different path, you're pivoting a little bit, that when these things come up, um, you know, you, you do need to have, you do need to have legal answers, um, and <laughs> solid legal advice around these things to protect yourself. Hi everyone. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services, and tell you about the recently launched AWS Serverless for Startups portal. If you are an aspiring entrepreneur, a technical founder, or anything in between, you have to check out this newly launched Serverless Hub. You can get access to AWS credits, plus a ton of technical resources so that you can build, iterate, and scale your startup idea faster and with less overhead. In my personal opinion, if you're building a startup today and you're not seriously looking at a serverless-first architecture, you could be putting yourself at a competitive disadvantage. Learn how to empower your startup with AWS serverless architecture at serverlesschats.com slash AWS startups. All right, we've been talking for a very long time and, and thinking back about what we've talked about, we've probably scared the crap out of people um, thinking like, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but but let's bring it back down. Because again, I, I mean, some I don't think anything we talked about is hyperbole. I think all of these things are yep. very, very real. The laws are real. The the, the compliance regulations are real. Um, you know, mm -hmm. just this idea of uh, of making sure that um, the data that's being saved is encrypted and that you you know you you put these levels of, of control into place are there. Those are all very, very real things. Yeah. But you had a talk back um, last year at uh, at Serverless uh, Conf New York. 
And mm -hmm. I thought it was fascinating because essentially what you said was the sky is not falling, right? Like we are yep. not now opened up to all these new attack vectors that yes, there are all these kinds of possibilities. Um, so let's let's rebuild up everyone's confidence now that we've broken it all down <laughs> um, and, and let them know that again, building in the cloud and building in serverless, that yes, you have to follow some security protocols and you have to do the right things. Um, but it's nowhere near the gloom and doom that I think you see a lot of people talking about. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's absolutely critical. You know, um, if there's a second takeaway besides find legal advice is stop worrying so much. Um, and I think right. that, that's where I, I have challenges and interesting discussions with my security contemporaries, because when we're talking amongst ourselves, we talk about really obscure hacks, interesting you know, vulnerability chains, zero-day attacks, criminal scams, all this kind of stuff because we're a you know, unique set of niche experts talking about our field, right? Um, whereas when you're talking about general building and trying to solve problems for customers and things like that, um, you have to look at likelihood because risk is really two things. It's the impact of an event, like the probable impact of an event, and the probability that that event will occur. So security mm -hmm. is very good at talking about, uh, outside of our security communities, about talking about the probable uh, impact of an event. So we say like, oh my God, the sky is falling. Like if this happens, <laughs> your entire infrastructure is owned. But what we don't mm -hmm. talk about is the likelihood of that happening. Be like, yeah, the chances are one in two trillion. And you're like, well, I don't care then. Like it's interesting, like nerd me is like, <laughs> right. that's interesting and I like that. But the reality yeah. is, is that, you know, often, the simple things that cause, so if you look at the S3 buckets you mentioned in, in, in one of the early questions, uh, I followed those breaches very, very closely. If you want to follow at home, uh, Chris Vickery from UpGuard has made his uh, his career over the last couple of years has been focused almost exclusively on S3 bucket breaches. Um, fantastic <laughs> research from, from him and his team. In every single case, it has not been a hack that has found the data. It has been simply that it was accidentally exposed. Right. Given the probability, yes, zero-day vulnerabilities are real, you know, cybercrime and attacks are real. You will see them over the course of your career. Your infrastructure will be attacked simply because it's connected to the internet. That's just the reality. You actually don't have to worry about that nearly as much as you think, if at all. What you need to focus on is building well, building good, resilient systems that are stable, that work reliably, and that do only what you want them to do is going to fix 95% right. of the security issues out there. And then you can worry about the other stuff. So the S3 bucket are just mistakes. They're just misconfigurations. Even Capital One, who unfortunately got hit with a $70 million fine because of it, um, it was a far more complicated mistake. But it was still a mistake. Basically, they had a WAF uh, that they were custom built on an EC2 instance in front of S3, and that WAF's role had too many permissions. That's it, yeah. right? A mistake was made, and it cost them, literally and reputationally. Yeah. So it's the likelihood of something happening is that you were going to mess up. So putting in tools in place, things like Cloud Custodian, the great open source project, um, little testing around security configurations, AWS config, using Google Security Operations Center, um, you know, all these tools that are at your disposal that are free or almost no cost to help prevent making mistakes. The idea to keep in your head as a builder is that you drew it up on PowerPoint, that's great. You drew it on the whiteboard, that's fine. You need something that checks to make sure that production is what you drew. And that's right. going to cover the vast majority of your security concerns. And if you get that done, then you can worry about the obscure, cool stuff. Right. Yeah. And I think I think you're totally right. I think that if you cover 
the basis, right? You cover, you know, and again, just like I said, especially with serverless, it almost all comes back to application security. Yep. I, I did a, um, I did an experiment, remember, two years ago at this point, where I was able to upload a file to S3, and the file name itself was a um, was a, a SQL Server injection attack, right? Like basically, yeah. um, that was the name of it. And so when it tried to load that, um, you know, the ID or whatever the file name was into a, a piece of code that, again, didn't think about um, SQL injection because maybe mm -hmm. it thought the source was trusted or whatever, that then yeah. there was there's the problem there. How many people are going to even try that? One, right? That's one thing. And then <laughs> yep. the other thing is, is that, again, if you're building solid applications and following just best practices, you should be thinking about SQL injection. That's a very real thing that if people don't build, um, and of course there's so many tools now that like you just shouldn't be building SQL injection anymore, but people still do. Um, yeah. But uh, but again, I, I think I, I think there is a sense of uh, doom and gloom or FUD, you know what I mean? Like trying to get mm -hmm. people to buy these security uh, applications and things that they do. Because again, like I, yep. I think that if, if you don't think there's a problem, you're not gonna buy a solution to fix it, right? Um, and, it, and for the very few people I th think who do get hacked, they're like, oh, I really wish I bought that solution. So I, I don't know what the right level of advice is. I think you're right is to say your likelihood is very low, but I still think people should think about security and put that first in a way that says, yes, maybe I don't have to worry about the obscure attack um, you know, mm -hmm. this way, but I should just make sure that I'm following best practices. And like you said, I like that idea of using open source projects um, yeah. to make sure that, that your infrastructure and your, and your, or your, your proposed infrastructure and your actual infrastructure do match. Yeah, so so let me say this, coming from a vendor, so Trend Micro is obviously a vendor, right. we're one of the top vendors there. Um, I don't agree with everything we put out from a marketing perspective because sometimes it does skew negative. We try not to, but it still does because like you said, if you don't believe there's an issue, um, you're not going to buy a product, right? And all the vendors are generally guilty of this, but I think it's a, a misunderstanding of what security's role is in the build process and in the, in, in building applications. And I think if, if you're sitting at home right now, you're listening to this, you know, thank you for sticking along. It's been a long episode or broken up into a couple um you know but i think it's all important and it's interesting but it's not just academic like you said there's real issues here there are real things that are going on but the best way to look at security controls is actually from a builder's perspective is that uh you know you mentioned sql ejection there is an open source fully tested phenomenal input validation library for every programming language out there there is no reason you should ever write your own. You should just import one of these. There are any sort of different licensing available as well. Um, and so you import that and you get that to check your validation because I think that is an example of larger security controls. Security controls can help ensure that what you're writing does what it's supposed to and only that. So input validation is a great example. If I take a Lambda function that takes an input that is you know, a first name and a last name, well, I need to verify that I'm taking in a name that's a valid name, uh, you know, first name and last name and not a SQL injection command and not uh, a picture like somebody trying to upload a data file and things like that. That's a security control. And if you see it as not trying to stop bad stuff, but from making sure that what you want to happen is the only thing that's happening, you start to adjust how you see these security controls and go like, you know, anti-malware, the classic, classic security control. You're like, well, I'm not going to get attacked by malware. Don't think of it as, as, an, as something to stop attacks, even though it will. Think of it as mm -hmm. I'm an application that takes files from the internet. There's bad things on the internet. I cannot possibly right. write a piece of software in addition to building a solution that is gonna scan this file to make sure that only good things are in there. 
Well, there's an entire community of security vendors that do that for a living. Pay for yeah. one of those tools, not to stop attacks, but to make sure the data you're taking in is clean. So when you adjust that kind of thinking and realize the security controls are just there to help you make sure what you think is happening is actually what's happening, you start to change your perspective and go, well, there's great open source stuff. There's great stuff for purchase, but I don't need to buy anything and everything. I don't need all this crazy advanced threat hunting stuff. I just need right. to make sure what I'm building does what I want and only that. Right. And I think if we tie this back to the original topic here is that the privacy of your user's data mm -hmm. is going to be dependent upon the security measures and, and, the, and the roles that you follow uh, or the rules that you follow to make sure that that data is secure. So uh, Mark, listen, thank you so much for spending you know, all this time with me um, and just sharing that perspective. I mean, this, is, I, this was an episode I really was excited about doing because I do think this is these things that just people don't necessarily think about. Um, I know we didn't talk a ton about serverless, but I really feel like it all does tie back to it. Uh, and I mean, just cloud development in general. So um, again, thank you so much for being here. If people want to find out more about you, watch your video series, things like that, how do they do that? Um, yeah, and thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and hopefully, you know, the audience and, and uh, we can all continue this conversation online as well. You can hit me up on Twitter and most social networks at MarkNCA. Um, my website is MarkN.ca um, and everything's linked up from there. My YouTube channel and all that um, uh, is there as well. So uh, happy to keep this conversation rolling uh, in the community as well. Because yeah, even though we weren't specifically talking about a lot of serverless aspects, I think the principles apply to everybody. The good news right. is if you're you're building in a serverless environment and serverless design, you're already way further ahead than most people uh, because you've delegated a lot of this to the uh, cloud providers, which is a massive win, which is one of the reasons I'm such a huge fan of the serverless community. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll get all your contact information into the show notes. Thanks again, Mark. Thank you. And that's the rest of my serverless chat with Mark Nunnenkoven. I want to give a huge thank you to Mark for being my guest and to our sponsors, New Relic and Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com 72. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.